Morning, everyone. Uh, If you've got a Bible, please could you turn to Luke chapter 17 and reading from verses 11 to 19. Every week at Church Central, we would put aside good time uh, to look at passage from the Bible. Uh, We believe that this book is God's word. We take it really seriously. Uh, We believe it's written by human beings. I think that's not really uh, in any doubt, but inspired by God. Uh, And so every week we would look at a passage. We want to look at what it actually means, understand what's going on, and then apply it to our lives. And that's exactly what we're doing today. And we've been going through uh, Luke's gospel uh, in the the Bible. And this is where we find ourselves. Luke 17, 11 to 19. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, if that is of any interest to you at all. Okay. Uh, As Jesus continued on towards Jerusalem, he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. As he entered the village there, ten lepers stood at a distance, crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. He looked at them and said, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus, shouting, Praise God. He fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. This man was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Didn't I heal ten men? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to the man, stand up and go. Your faith has healed you. I don't know about you, but there's something about ingratitude that kind of vexes me. It kind of sticks in my uh, kind of craw or something like that. Uh, And I I think this shows itself most when I'm in my car. I don't know if anyone can identify with it. uh, I'm not the kind of person who drives around for fun. You know, those people go for a drive where it doesn't really matter where they're going. I'm not that kind of person. If I'm driving somewhere, I have a destination in mind and I'm probably pushing it for time. Okay, that's probably what's happening. Now, if in that scenario then, I out of the utter kindness and compassion of my heart, slow down or even stop to allow some poor soul who no one else has noticed to leave their drive or come out of a busy junction or something like that, I will expect a sign of thanks, okay? Now, I don't mind a little wave. I don't know how to do it. A little wave's fine. That little flashy thing with their lights that makes it look like they're about to break down, that's fine as well, okay? But something. If I do that, go out of my way like that for someone, you can see it's Close to the bone, this stuff is honest, raw preaching from the start. Um, if I do that and I see nothing, no wave, no lights, anything, I'm like, I have, to, I have to show self-control in that case. Ingratitude, that sticks with us, doesn't it? And uh, particularly, I suppose, when people are ungrateful to us, I suppose. Uh, but I think many of us might be similar. Or might, you might be thinking, who is this guy? Why do they let him preach? But anyway, um, that's, that bird has flown, I'm afraid. Um, so when, when, I, <laughs> when I read a passage like this then, uh, and when we do, I think we can be quick, quite quick to instantly judge these nine lepers as they're seen here. And kind of say something like, were these people not taught any manners as children. They weren't taught to say their pleases and thank yous or something like that. Now coming to the passage with that instant reaction, I've been made aware of two things as I've prepared this talk and I want to make you aware of them right at the start uh, just so you know uh, because they helped me in, in really looking at this passage. The first thing is this, despite what I've heard about this passage and things I've the talks I've heard on this passage before. This passage is not primarily an encouragement to say thank you to people who do nice things to you. 
Okay, that's not the main point here. Gratitude's in there, but that's not the main thing in this passage. And secondly, that um, we all, myself included, need to be a little bit careful about being too hasty with these nine lepers, because as we'll see, it is just possible that I might not be as different from them as I first think, and that might also be true uh, for some of you guys too. Now, what is important in this passage is, as we're going to see, is people's attitudes are important, but I want to focus right at the start. I think the most important thing is location of characters. I want to put that in your head right at the start, and I'll unpack this as we go along, but just to give you an idea of where we're going, we basically see two, two kind of groups of people. One guy, he ends the story at Jesus' feet. Location, he's holding on to Jesus, okay? Let's clock that, that's important. Where are the other guys? Well, they're somewhere else. Run off into the horizon, never to be seen again. They're somewhere else doing other things. And Jesus' question at the end of this passage is, didn't I heal ten men? Where are the other nine? And Jesus would be asking us today a question about location. You'll see this isn't mean geographically, where does the GPS say I am? No, but in spiritually our location, where are you today? Which of these two sides do you fit with most? And it's a question I think that's relevant to every one of us, uh, whether you're a Christian here or not. And so I think uh, with that said, let's crack on and see what this passage means, unpack what I've said, and I think God could, uh, is really going to speak to us uh, today. So, we need to find out what's going on here. So let's go back after that brief kind of uh, intro. Let's go back and see what's happening here. So what's going on? Jesus uh, continued on toward Jerusalem. Luke's Gospel starts off with stories about Jesus' birth, Okay, a bit about John the Baptist getting born, about Jesus getting born. And then it moves to another section where Jesus' uh, what we might call Jesus' ministry begins in Galilee and around Galilee, and where Luke is introducing us to Jesus. And then in Luke 9, 51, uh, it changes, and it says that Jesus resolutely set out to Jerusalem. And we're in that section. He's on his way somewhere. He knows why he's going. He knows what will happen to him when he gets there. But he's on his way to Jerusalem, and he's about halfway. That kind of gives us a, a setting to why he's at this place. Okay, and while he's there, uh, he meets 10 lepers. Okay, 10 people uh, who are lepers who we'd assume would have leprosy. Okay, now uh, for many of us, I would imagine you have some idea of leprosy. When I say that thing, uh, that illness, you think, okay, I, I kind of know about that. It's, it's the one which affects your skin, but also your nerves ends up in my mind. Now, accuracy would be kind of bits of you would might fall off because you lose all feeling in your body. Incredibly serious uh, illness uh, can be fatal if not treated, and only I think able to be treated reasonably recently. Okay, now we've got to understand this. Uh, they didn't necessarily necessarily have that okay what is called a leprosy in the new testament is it could be a whole number of different skin conditions that would vary a lot in degrees of physical discomfort and pain and seriousness in that sort of uh, way but the real problem for these guys wasn't the pain they were or weren't in no it was the fact that the illnesses they had to be considered a leper and we we know about this way of saying that phrase. A leper is an outcast and is someone who is, is alienated completely from the society around them. And this uh, comes from a law in the Old Testament in Leviticus 13, 45 to 46. Moses explains what to do to someone with a skin condition of this sort. It says this, Anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, Cover the lower part of their face and cry out, unclean, unclean. 
As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. Okay? If you are a leper, you cannot interact with anyone else who is not a leper. These ten people together, so they're not technically alone. That's not the point. The point is, no, you've got to be separated from uh, the social life of the nation, the religious life of the nation, maybe from your family, from your friends, from your job. Uh, and that is a ter- Imagine that. That's a terrible sentence for anybody. And that's these guys' main problem here. And we see it uh, in the, where they're standing. Ten lepers stood at a distance. Okay? And that's how they would always stand uh, from people. They'd be at a distance from them. Now, that's the case for these guys physically, but I think we've got to look a bit under the surface here and say Luke's doing something else here as well in this description, uh, because, and he's making a more profound universal point, really, because in a sense, these lepers, are, I mean, they're real people at a real time in history, but they represent a bigger thing. In fact, in a sense, they represent all of us, naturally speaking, because who is it they're standing at a distance from? Well, it's Jesus. And who's Jesus? Well, Jesus is God himself in human form. And for these guys, I guess, uh, they had the the issue of separation and alienation from society. But their, their condition is a picture of a separation and alienation that we all have, which is a separation and alienation from God himself. And we all stand, like these guys, we have a picture of all of our condition here. We all stand naturally at a distance, crying out, God, help us. Actually, the distance is so great that kind of we think, well, did he hear? Actually, I can't really see. Is he even there? This is a picture of all of us. And, and for these guys as well, that this was still their biggest problem. And they, they wouldn't have realized this. But God was right there, and they were at a distance from him. It's a picture of that. And so their cry, uh, still they're, they're talking more about their physical condition, but is for him to have mercy on them. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us in verse 13. And uh, they knew they needed God's mercy. There was nothing these guys could do to fix their condition. There was no, well, I went to the doctors this week to kind of see if I could sort something out. And uh, I was thinking, oh, can I fix my diet? Will that help? Will, will do a bit of exercise help? Will take some medicine help? And luckily, one of those things did work for what I went to the doctors about. These guys, no, they, they didn't have anything like that. They couldn't have done anything. There was nothing they could do to cleanse themselves. For all of us, we're in the same situation. As we stand at a distance from God, shouting, naturally speaking, well, how can we fix it? Well, we can't fix it. There's nothing we can do. We're unable on our own to bridge the gap between us and the source of all our joy, all our peace, and all our hope. We can't do it. The Bible pulls no punches on this one. That This is the natural state of all human beings. We can't get ourselves back in relationship with God. We need divine intervention. We need a miracle, like these lepers needed a miracle. And uh, if right now, already today, you recognize, actually, that's the position I'm in now. I'm distanced from God. I, I might see things slightly different to you, but I can see that gulf. Well, I'd encourage you to keep listening, because as we see, there's some good news for you in this passage. Okay? So let's see what happens next. Well, the good news starts here for these guys is that Jesus heals them. Verse 14, he looked at them and said, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. Just a bit of background here. Just if you had leprosy, imagine you're doing your business and one day you look down at your arm. Oh dear, what's that red rash? And you go to the priest and they say, Uh oh, 
leprosy, unclean, unclean, your life falls apart like that. The priest would declare that. He wouldn't go to the clinic or the doctors or something like that or check it on the NHS Direct online or anything. Now, the priest would tell you that. Now, just the same, if it got healed, you'd go back and say, hey, look, it's gone. And the priest would go, fantastic, you are now clean. He'd sign you off in that sort of respect from the lepers club. Okay? And uh, the, that's the whole point of going, showing yourselves to the priest. But it would seem uh, that Jesus told them to go before any physical change had occurred at all. That's do it in faith. But as they did, they realized, and at what point in the journey, whether it's as they talked to the priest or whatever, we're cleansed, we're healed, fantastic. So Jesus heals these guys. And then we get to the bit of the story where really the most important part, where there's two different now responses to that healing. Verses 15 to 16, you see one guy returns to Jesus. Okay, says this, as we've read, one of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus, shouting, praise God. He fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. This man was a Samaritan. He did three things. He shouted, praise God. He's praising God loudly. He thanks Jesus, but also he falls to Jesus' feet. It's something akin, I suppose, to worship, I would imagine. And many highlight, as I said, this man's gratitude as being the thing he is being praised for. But we've got to notice there's more going on than him just going up and going, I'll tell you what, mate, thanks so much. That's really handy. Walking off. That's not what he's, he's doing here. Okay. Now, I'd... I'd admit for him in his mind why is he back there this may well be the reason primarily he returned to Jesus that he was thankful but Luke's point is much deeper because it's not so much his attitude I think that's important here it's his destination because he came back to Jesus that's vitally important Luke understood the situation this guy's deepest problem was not alienation from people or alienation from religious structures it was alienation from God and this guy ends the story physically with a physical symbol of reconciliation to God he is at the feet clutching on to Jesus God made man it's a picture of reconciliation now I'm I'm not saying that he knew all of that and he recognized all that but I love it in the gospels where we get these these vivid pictures of theological truths. And here we have one right here. Because we see now how through Jesus' death and resurrection, he has found a way to cleanse us. We couldn't have done it, but he has. He's found a way to take away our sin, to bring us back into friendship with God. And we see this graphically illustrated in this story with this guy clutching onto Jesus at the end. That's the one guy, okay? Comes back to his destination is Jesus. But then there's the other nine uh, Verse 17 to 19, Jesus asked, Didn't I heal ten men? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to the man, Stand up and go. Your faith has healed you. Jesus, we've got to notice this. He does address the man who comes to him, and he seems pleased for him. He's healed him. He encourages him. But his focus is actually elsewhere. What's Jesus' main feeling at the end of this passage? It's disappointment. He's, he's pleased for the man. He's like, well, but there were ten. Where are the other nine? Where have they gone? That seems to be Jesus' overriding concern. And, and there is a sense of surprise that Jesus has that these guys haven't come back. I think there's two, uh, two things that cause Jesus' surprise here. Firstly, they were all healed, but they haven't come back. The obvious one, okay? Didn't I heal ten men? He's counting on his fingers, you know. He doesn't have to be that good at maths to know there were slightly more healed than back here because only one guy there. 
Now for us, we might think this is the strangest thing of all. We, we might not be able to conceive of why these nine wouldn't come back to Jesus. I mean, it's just bad manners at the end of the day. However, I think we've got to realize it is, they, it is not the right response here. But there is a sense in which, from their perspective, I think this is reasonably excusable in some ways that they weren't there. Take this example. Let's imagine there's someone here who's visiting the church today. Could well be the case, if that's the case. Hi, welcome, great. Now let's imagine you are from Torquay, which could have, is anyone from Torquay today? That'd be great. No, this must be the other site, you know. Uh, anyway, um, but imagine you were, you were here from Torquay, and you were just visiting the church, and some point in the service, somebody prayed for you for the long-standing illness you've got. You, thank, you thanked him, kind of said, well, thank, cheers for praying and all that sort of stuff. But then you went... Um, back on uh, the train or whatever to get back to Torquay, and you woke up this tomorrow morning in Torquay, woke up in the morning and thought, wait a minute, I am completely healed. I'm totally better. And uh, you went to your church, and you told him you gave testimony, you kind of thanked God in your prayers. You, your spiritual life was re-energized for a long time, but you neglected ever to tell the person who prayed for you that that is what had happened, okay? Now, ten, ten years later or so, you bump into that person again, and they, they say, oh, Thought of, I recognize you. Where did I see you from? They said, you prayed for me 10 years ago. Look, um, I didn't tell you, but I'm completely better. Jesus healed me right at that moment, okay? What would your response be to that person? Would you be furious with them? How dare you've committed this injustice against me? You didn't return to thank me. You might have given me a kind of pat on the back. It was nice to be prayed for, but you didn't thank me for the healing power I released to you. Of course you wouldn't. You'd be really pleased for them. You'd know they did the right thing. They, they went and thanked God, who was the one who healed them. After all, you just helped in the process, okay? Now, from these guys' perspective here, surely at least we could say a similar thing they are probably thinking has happened. I mean, let's be clear. Surely these nine people are thanking God somewhere for what's gone on. Surely. It's, it's hard to believe they would be off wherever they're off to, just kind of forgot the whole thing. I mean, there, there must be some measure of thanks for God. I mean, these are from a religious background. They, they must be doing that. Okay. The issue is they didn't come back to Jesus. More than they weren't thankful. As we'll see, that's a problem. Okay. But we can understand that. And I think, uh, therefore, we need to look a little bit further here to why Jesus is so surprised. He was surprised that they were healed and they hadn't returned, but there was more to it than that. And I think we see that in the other bit here that, for some of you, you're kind of probably hoping I got onto. Um, because the other thing that surprises him was the ethnic origin of the people who did the different things. The guy who came back, he was a Samaritan. The guys who stayed away, they were Israelites. They were uh, more a traditional Orthodox Jewish people. And maybe for you, uh, all the way through this talk, you, um, verse 18 is sort of stuck in your mind, and you thought, well, why has Jesus suddenly become like a BMP member in verse 18 here? <laughs> has no one returned to give glory to God except this jolly foreigner? Those foreigners, they come over here and steal our jobs. Ah. What's Jesus doing? Surely he's not that sort of person. And so you're already glad we've got around to this, because no, he has not joined the BMP all of a sudden in this passage, as far as I can tell. Okay? Um, what does he mean then by this comment that seems quite offensive to us? Well, it's clear what he means in one sense, in that this guy is a, is a Samaritan. Luke makes that point quite clearly. And by foreigner, Jesus is pointing out that this guy was someone who was considered an outsider. Samaritans were viewed with suspicion by most Jews for a whole host of different reasons, but they were considered to be outside of the community. Now, whether they were genetically and ethnically doesn't really matter. That's how they were seen. They were seen very much like Gentiles or non-Jews. And Jesus' point here is 
not to degrade or embarrass this man by calling him this offensive title, which you probably would be the case if you used that term to someone who was not from England nowadays. So please don't do that. That wasn't in the context. That's not the point at all. And that's not what would have been heard. What he's saying is, look, this guy is perceived to be outside of God's people and he gets it. The other guys, they were in the gang. They should have known better. But they totally missed the point. And that's where his surprise seems to lie mostly in this passage. Now again, got to dig a little bit deeper here to find out what's going on here. And for those of you who were around our big story series, the next couple of minutes might be more of a recap. But we do have to understand something of what went on before to see why this is so surprising to Jesus. Why was it that he expected more of those nine who had a Jewish heritage rather than the outsider, the foreigner, the Samaritan, okay? Well, to put it briefly, to put it bluntly, uh, Israel had a very special place in God's purposes in the Old Testament of the Bible. The Bible paints the picture that all humanity had sinned, all humanity become rotten, and all humanity needs saving. Very, very clear. But God chose to start the rescue plan for that thing with one nation, with Israel, now, remember the, the fundamental problem that we talked about earlier. It's, it's the same problem these lepers had. The fundamental problem from our sin is we find ourselves separated from God and alienated from our Creator. And it's like the Old Testament presents the picture as God starting the rescue plan with just this one ethnic group, the people of Israel. And it's as if these people, uh, they're kind of fed up with the distance that they've got from God, you know. And uh, they, they tell him, look, kind of calling out from a distance. We want to be different, God. We want this to be different. We want to be back with you. And what happens is God responds by showing this specific group of people what that would really involve to be back together as friends again. And he presents Israel, if you like, with the terms. And it's as if he says, well, look, guys, you've got to understand because of who I am and because of who you are now through your sin, Okay? Being back in a special relationship with me, the thing that you kind of want, that's going to demand some pretty large changes around here. And they're pretty big, actually. And so what he does is he gives them the law, the whopping great law to show them what he means. If you, you might be uh, familiar with the kind of uh, the ten, kind of the pre of the Ten Commandments. But there's 631 of these things in the commandments given to Moses. Okay, here's the law. You want to know what it would be like, what, what it would look like for you to be in relation to me? Bang! Here it is. Take a look. This is what that thing would look like. There are laws governing every area of life. There's laws governing how you treat other people, how you approach God. Even laws about what's going on in your own head. Okay? Have a read take you a while okay but it's in the old testament now the idea then the question we've got to ask then okay we get it is it this just a simple deal that's going on here you do this i do this shake hands everything sorted well israel certainly thought thought so Uh, in exodus 24 verse 3 we can see how they responded to things it says this moses came and told the people all the words of the lord and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice and said all the words that the lord has spoken we will do Wow, how's that for overconfidence right there? That's how they respond. Great, God, we see. We can do this. Of course we can do this. That's fine. I flicked through. It looks pretty understandable. And you'll be our friend. Let's shake on it. Magnificent. They think it's just a simple deal going on here. But actually, they slightly missed the point of this whole thing. 
I don't think that was the essence of why God gave them the law. And I'll back that up with more than I don't think in a moment. But let me give you an illustration to show, I think, a little bit more of what was going on here. Okay? Let's remove our heads from Old Testament theology and this and that, to the Mellor household on an otherwise tranquil day. But unfortunately, in the Mellor household, I am Mellor house, my house, okay. I've got a boy called Isaiah and he's six years old. Let's imagine Isaiah one day, uh, through no malice, he breaks my MacBook, okay? I'm twitching even thinking about this, but anyway, I'm going to get through this. Let's imagine he breaks my Mac- MacBook. Now, I like my MacBook. My MacBook is very useful. I just think it's great, okay? Uh, and if you've shopped for these sort of things before, you know, those people go, oh, I'd really like one of them. How much they cost? Flipping heck. And I've been through that, okay? Let's imagine he breaks my MacBook, okay? I'm dwelling on this too long. I'm going to get off this now. And he's absolutely, he knows what I feel about this thing, and he knows it flashes and it's shiny, so it must be important so he goes to me frantic and upset and he says dad dad i'm so sorry i i i'll i'll make it better i'll get you a new macbook okay now i by this point have calmed myself ready and i just kind of say no son look that's not exactly how it's going to work that's going to be impossible look i I forgive you i want to foot the bill myself thank you very much but let's imagine he just doesn't listen He, he won't listen at all and he insists that he would like to make amends himself and so I try a slightly different strategy to try to show him that that's not really going to work. And I say, Isaiah, you've got to understand what it would involve for you to do this. To pay me back to fix what you have broken, it would mean you washing the car and mowing the lawn of every single house on our whole estate, assuming they give you kind of 10 quid for the job, okay? Not just our road, our whole estate. Now, if I was to say that to him, what would my point be? I think it would be quite simple. I wouldn't be saying, this is to do, off you go, this is your job now. It would be saying, look, that's impossible. No one in their right mind is going to let you near their car, Isaiah. I'm sorry, that's not happening. No, I'll do it. That's another way of saying, I'm going to do this. We have to work together on this, but I'll do it. Let me buy it myself. Let's imagine that Isaiah doesn't understand this. And the next day I wake him and his sister up, or go to wake him up. And Isaiah's not in his bed. Panic. Look out the window. And there he is, bucket of water, dragging the mower along, Linsworth Road. Let's imagine that's what happens. In a sense, that's exactly what Israel does for the rest of the Old Testament. They misunderstand the law. They don't see that it was given actually to them to highlight the the impossibility of them ever meeting all the demands necessary to cleanse themselves and earn God's favor. And so what they do is they strive for hundreds of years to keep up their end of the bargain. And despite all the increasing evidence to the contrary, they remain steadfast and confident that they can actually do it and they can meet their side of the bargain. Romans 3, Paul writes this, Therefore, No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. That's what the law is for. It's to show us a mirror to ourselves, to realize, oh, okay, I see. I've done it wrong, and that's quite serious, my breakage here. I don't think I can pay this back. That's the point of the law. It's not just to kind of rub our noses in it. The point of it is that then when we turn back to God and admit we can't do it, Actually, we don't need a deal. We understand that once we become conscious of our sin. We need mercy and we need forgiveness. The intended result of my flippant comment to my son would have been, if, you, if I've communicated the picture right, to, to get him to realize that he can't be, buy me a new MacBook. He cannot atone for what he did. So all he needs to do is say sorry and accept my forgiveness. I will take the debt. 
I will pay for it out of my pocket. It will cost me, but I'm willing to do it. Exactly the same goes with God. God knew, I don't know if you recognize this, but from the very moment that human beings sinned, God knew that he was going to have to pick up the tab on this one. It says in Genesis 3, minute human beings have sinned, it's actually God's talking to the snake, representative of the devil at that point, and he says to him, you know what, there's a day coming, it might be a long way off, but when the offspring of the woman will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. And right at that moment in the story, immediately God says, you've sinned. Okay, I know what's going to happen here. The cross is going to happen. Jesus is going to crush the devil's head and offspring of the woman, but he himself will be bruised. I'm going to foot the bill. I'm going to pick this one up. He knew it. But the issue was that our pride was so great that we were convinced from the outset that we could fix the mess we were in through our goodness and our hard work. So what did God do? When he gave the law to a group of people to convince us and show us in history that actually that's not the case. That that's not going to we we won't be able to do it. And therefore to make us ready to accept God's gift when it came. The law was given that we become conscious of sin, but also, in a sense, it was also given, it's the same thing from a different angle, to lead us to Jesus. Galatians three, twenty-four says exactly this that the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. Because once we're in that position, we know what mess we're in. When the solution comes and says, actually, I can fix this, we throw ourselves on him. We know everything else is hopeless. And that's how it goes. Now, that's my big story bit. Hope, hope you stayed in with that. A few lawnmowers thrown in for fun, you know. But hopefully, if that worked for you, you might be able to see a bit more now why Jesus was so surprised here. These nine lepers were Jews. They had been wrapped up in this whole plan God had been doing. They had been trooping up and down that road, lawnmower in hand with bucket, for years and years. And they should have realized by now the point that they could never do it. And now Jesus is there. God's salvation plan is standing right in front of them. And it's not just that he's there telling them through his message. He's demonstrated by cleansing them of their symbolic illness to show that he's come to bring an end to this this problem, to fix it. And what do they do? Where do they end up? They end up wandering off into the horizon far away from him. The Lord should have led them to Christ. Actually, they didn't catch it at all. I think we can be a little bit more specific, actually, with these guys if we talk about their destination and where they ended up, actually. I said at the beginning, destination and location is important. Where are they left at the end of this story? The one guy is at Jesus' feet. Where is the last place that Luke leaves them? Well, the last mention that's made of them is in verse 14. Go show yourselves to the priest. And they went. In a sense, they're left with the priests, these guys. The one guy's with Jesus. The nine guys are left back at familiar religious practice. I think we're meant to assume this. What are they doing at this time? Think of all the options and opportunities that have now been opened up to them that they didn't have before. They can involve themselves in the religious life of the nation again. They could be good religious Jews again. They could pray with God's people. They could hear and learning about the law uh, from the rabbi and things like that. They couldn't do that before. They can help with the community. They can, uh, they can even uh, go and help the poor. They can encourage people to follow the law. All of those things. All good things, actually. The assumption must be that's kind of what they're doing here. And because of all of that sort of stuff, they had completely forgotten Jesus 
I just didn't see the point of returning to him. Thank you. What you did was you, you enabled me, Jesus, for what you've done to get back into religious stuff. Thank you. Fantastic. But we're not going to thank you. We're going to go and do it. Because actually, what do you matter? Can you see the, the absolutely tragic irony here? It affected these nine, but it's a picture of what happened to Israel as an entire nation. Israel's problem, like everyone's, was separation and alienation from God. They were crying out to him at distance. Yet when God himself came so close to them that he walked on their very soil, they didn't spot him. As we see here, they went back to the law that was designed to lead them to him. You know what? This passage is not an encouragement to us to remember to say our pleases and thank yous. It's a challenge to all of us as to where we are right now. Are we like the one at Jesus' feet, or are we off with the priests, busying ourselves in religious activity? It's taken us a while to get there, but that's what's happening here in this passage. That's a question that is as real for us today as it ever has been, and it was for the readers of Luke's Gospel. I imagine there'd be some here that would be right now still living at a distance from God. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian, uh, you ne- never would have called yourself a Christian, but you say, look, I recognize that. Uh, there is a gap between me and the one who I was designed to know. Well, listen, it is no longer necessary for you to live like that. Because the same Jesus who cleansed these lepers has made it possible for our uncleanness to be taken away so that we can come close to him again. And the word the Bible uses for that, and I've mentioned it a couple of times, is a word called Reconciliation. Paul writes in Romans 5, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. It's one of those big words in the Bible that explains what Jesus did on the cross. Reconciliation. It's a bringing back together of people who are apart. And I want to bring this home. I've got a couple of non-religious scenarios that I could give you so we really get this. What is reconciliation? Well, let's give, me a couple, give you a couple of examples. Let's imagine... There were uh, two sisters, and uh, one of the sisters, one lady, she offends her sister in such a way that the sister says, I am never speaking to you again. We're over, we're friends, you're dead to me, all of that sort of stuff. And so she does, she's true to her, she, she stops speaking to her. And the lady who's wronged her sister is dreadfully sorry and, and tries to do everything within her power to, to, get, to reunite the sisters, to bring them back together. But her sister doesn't return any of her emails. She doesn't return any of her calls, any of her letters, nothing. Okay? But let's imagine that after 20 years of this sort of activity, this, this one lady who'd done something wrong, trying to make it right, eventually her sister, 20 years later, gives in and says, okay, then look, I forgive you. And they make up again. Do you know what that would be called? Any guesses? Reconciliation. That's Reconciliation. Give you another example. Let's imagine uh, a man is sent away to, to war, to fight a war. Goes into the army. And he thinks he's going to be there for a couple of weeks. Well, weeks turn into months, and months turn into years. And fighting in the war is tough. It's a hard deal. But the hardest thing for this guy is he's left behind his wife and his two young children. Every day he's writing to them, saying, I wish I was back home. I can't believe I haven't seen you out. I can't even recognize the kids anymore. For him, it would be just this gut-wrenching sense of, sense of alienation, of separation. And after five years of life on the front line, the war finally finishes and the man is allowed to return home to his family. And he's reunited with them. What's that called? 
It's reconciliation. You're getting it. I can see this. You're getting this. Good. We've understood. We've understood the term. I'll give you one more example. I hope this isn't bashing over the head. <laughs> For each of us, we through our sin have become so corrupt and opposed to God in our natures and our affections that the relationship that we were made to have with the one who made us has been ruined. It's been broken. We may offer him the odd thought, the odd prayer. He may occasionally spill the odd blessing into our lap. But it's not a relationship. It's it's not what it should be. There's a significant and terrible distance between us. However, Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has has found the way to forgive our sins and transform our hearts and our characters so that the bone of contention that lay between us and God is gone. It can be removed. And so our relationship with God can be fixed. We can know his unrestrained favor on us. We can speak to him. We can be confident that he's listening to us. We can even hear his voice and know his guidance to us. Do you know what that's called? It's reconciliation. That's what we're talking about. That's reconciliation. The same as the others. And if you're not a Christian, if you've never taken that offer, all you need to do is to follow Jesus. Give your life to him. And agree to live his way from now on. If you'd like to do that even today, you know what? I'm going to be shooting off to some other sites, but I know there'll be a load of people who'd love to talk to you about that. There's all sorts of things going to happen in the meeting today, but please log that thought. We would like to pray for you, and we'd like to talk that through with you. But as we close, I know there are many of you, I assume more, that would have done this stuff already. You might think, actually, oh, this reconciliation stuff, okay, yeah, we say the word, I I know this. This is very familiar to me indeed. But I want to ask you before we finish, are you taking advantage of this reconciliation? Are you taking advantage of this reconciliation? Right now, are you enjoying what Jesus has done by throwing yourself at his feet? Or are you thankful, but from a distance, busying yourself in religious activity? Which of the lepers do you identify with? Return to those illustrations I gave a second ago. Just imagine they end slightly differently to how you might imagine. Let's imagine the two sisters, um, it goes as it happens, and and the sister who's been wronged agrees, oh, I'm coming, we're going to be friends again, we're reuniting. She gets in her car, sat down the the way, parks outside the house, goes up to the door, knocks on the door, some trepidation, but really keen to make it right after years of holding this grudge. Um, And you have her sister badgering her about it. And she knocks on the door, nothing Nothing happens, no sound. She knocks again. Still nothing. And as she's kind of sitting there thinking, what's going on? Looks down under the mat, there's a little note. And it says, uh, you, you might want to be at my door. I'm really sorry, but uh, you know what? Some friends of mine were, were going off on holiday for a month or so. I thought, well, that's a great opportunity. So I'm going, sorry, I won't be able to see you. Wouldn't that be bizarre? That would be strange. After all of those years of wanting to be back with her sister, then suddenly, oh, just I'm on holiday, not around. That's strange. What about this? What about the army guy? Family come to the, uh, to the station and, uh, with the letters maybe in hand from the, from the lady's husband and from the kid's dad saying, I'd, I'd love to be back with you guys. And they're waiting and the train pulls in and uh, they see a soldier after soldier gets off the train. Where is he? Where is he? He must have changed a bit, but I can't see him. And actually, they all go off the train and the train goes off and they can't see him. And one of the soldiers comes up to him and goes, are you this guy's wife? And he says, yep. 
That's me. Well, I want to pass on a message. Um, basically, the war's over and all that, and he's been discharged. But he, he's been in France anyway, and he's always really wanted to check out Bordeaux. So he decided to go down and with some mates. It's going to be a while, but don't you worry. It'll be back at some point. That would be odd. That would be strange behavior. One more. What about this? Let's imagine someone who recognized their need to get right with God. They understood how Jesus had found the way for that to happen. So basically, they repented, they believed in Jesus, and uh, they knew what it was for their sins to be taken away, to be cleansed before God and reconciled. But then, they busied themselves in so much activity, they never really spent any time with the one who they'd been reconciled to. Instead of talking to him, they spent time with other people. Instead of listening to him, they threw themselves into their work. Instead of worshipping and praising him and learning what it is to embrace him and spend time in his presence, they busied themselves with Christian activity. Church rotors, serving in different ministry areas, even helping other people. Wouldn't that be strange? Wouldn't that be bizarre? That's exactly what happened to these nine lepers. And I tell you what, it's exactly what happens to many of us. And if that's you today, Jesus would ask you a question, just like he did here. Look around. Where are you? You're looking at his feet where the one guy is, where some, many of us would be there. And he's like, this is, this is where you should be. I, I won this for you. Where are you? I didn't reconcile you to me so that you could make yourself busy. I reconciled you to me so that we could be together. So that you could really get to know me. So that you could learn the tone of my voice. That you could know what it is to speak to me. That you could recognize my touch on your life. This one leper, he ends up with Jesus, ecstatic, overflowing with joy at this man who is God or this God who is man or whoever he is. All he knows is he owes him in his life and he wants to be as close to him as he can be. Is that where you are? If not, where? For some of us, I'd imagine we've got to admit we're with the priests. We're in all the busyness of the doing. It could be very good doing. Just I'm not saying anything about the things you're, you're doing. They might be excellent things. But actually in all the doing, we forgot about the one who cleansed us. We forgot about the point of reconciliation. You know what? Today it's, it's time to come back to where you belong, actually. If you want to know practically what this means, the finish. Last thing I want to say with the practical thing, because there's something practical we can do here. I want us to learn from this leper. To take advantage of our reconciliation means doing just like he did, prioritizing worship and thanking Jesus in our lives. Prioritize worship and thanking Jesus in your life. When you're on your own, you know what? Some of you know I'm going with this and you've heard this before and believe me, you're going to hear it many times again because it never changes. Spend time with Jesus. Lay aside time to spend time with him. I can say that only so many different ways, but it's vitally important. It's the point, really. I, can know, I know it can be hard to know what to do at such times. You sit there, and you're like, kind of, okay, I have to set aside time. What do I do? Staring at the ceiling. What's happening? And I'd encourage you, as well as asking Jesus for stuff, reading the Bible, those are good things to do, just spend time telling Jesus how good he is. Sing him songs. Thank him for what's going on in your life. Your life might be tough at the moment. Well, I'll tell you what, there's going to be, while there's tough things to pray to him about, there's going to be many more things that we can thank him for. If you've not ever done that before, you're going to find that really awkward. I just want to prepare you for that now. No one goes into that and thinks, yeah, 
easy. You're going to find it awkward. But just as kind of a heart of worship is something given to us, we pray that the Holy Spirit would help us, it's also something that's learned. And we've got to learn what it is for us to fall at Jesus' feet. What does that mean for you? And the only way to do that is to put aside time to try. When you're at Christian meetings, then, like today, what do we do? Well, how do we fall at Jesus' feet? Well, I'd encourage you to take advantage of times of worship. You know what? It may not be your style of music. It might not be. You might be asking questions about what are other people doing? Why is that person doing that or that? If those things are massive hang-ups to you, can I just ask you, can we get some perspective here? It doesn't matter whether it's your style of music. It doesn't matter what other people are doing. The question is, are you at Jesus' feet? I'm sure this guy here was not a massive fan of feet kissing. I'm sure that wasn't his thing. He's like, I love kissing feet. No, no, but for him, it was the application of how do I worship this one who I've been reconciled to? Well, I, I fall at his feet. I praise him. I shout loudly. You don't have to worship like everyone else does, but please don't miss the opportunity to worship. Wouldn't it be tragic if at the end of a meeting, maybe today or any meeting, God was to look down from heaven, Jesus looked down from heaven and uh, say to the angels, where is he? Where is she? And the angels would go, wait a minute, God, get binoculars out. No, no, you've missed them. They're there. They've been there the whole time. They're on time and everything. They're there. They're singing the songs, all of that stuff. You missed them. And Jesus said, no, you don't understand me. Yeah, they're there. They're in the room. They're singing the songs. They're even calling me master. But I'll tell you what, they're not on my feet. And I can't remember when they have been. Wouldn't that be tragic? 